Hello, and welcome to the Living Word Pensacola podcast. Here you will find teaching from our weekly services where we focus on developing a Christ-centered life. We are delighted you have chosen to spend time with us today, and we know today's message has the power to help you grow with your faith journey. So, let's turn our hearts and our minds to God's Word as we begin today's episode. This week we're going to talk about prayer and praise. We're going to talk about, um, about how this is supposed to work in our life, how this is supposed to change our life. The Lord, you know, we've been talking a lot about a really interesting, a lot of serious things, but, but we've also, coming into our Christmas season, and Christmas season is a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a time of excitement. There's, a, there's an excitement in the presence of heaven right now as people are turning towards him. You know, I, as a pastor and as a Christian, as a person, you know, I wish it was kind of the Christmas season all year round because it takes a reality check for some people to realize I've gotten too far away from the, the center point. I've gotten too far away from God. I've gotten too far away. I've gotten too distracted. There's too much stuff in my life. But it takes something that's drastic to, to, to get us back to a point of, of center. And today's message is very, very upbeat. It's supposed to be a very celebratory. It's supposed to be a part of our life that if we realize the power in our praise, if we realize the power in joy, in the joy of the Lord being our strength. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's not even in my notes. You can go home and find that in the Bible for yourself. Write it down on the top. Go find the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? The joy of the Lord, when you have a heart of thankfulness, a heart of praise and a heart of prayer, that joy becomes the fuel for what's going on, right? When we were decorating our Christmas tree, what did we do? We said, Alexa, turn on Christmas music, right? And you get in the Christmas spirit because all of a sudden it's sleigh bells ring. Are you listening, right? And you get all this Christmas going. You're like, all right, I'm hanging. And then we remember Christmas memories, right? You walk down this path, right? Now our boys, we always bought the packs of the little metal hooks because it seems like every year you go to pour the ornaments out and the hooks are missing, right? Well, when we were decorating the tree when they were little, was it Aiden and Brock? Coben? Or is Daxel? It was Daxel. We get all the way down and Daxel goes, I need one of those Christmas hookers. And he was talking about the little hook, right? And that's the little hook that holds the ornament on the tree. Probably shouldn't be saying that in church, but, but these little metal things on here are Christmas hookers and it hooks it onto the tree and you are good to go. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> But it's supposed to be just this. It's supposed to be a time of fun and celebration, right? And every year there's a pause at our house when we run across the one Christmas ornament, and you even know I'm going, of Princess was our first dog. She lived to be 13 years old, and she was the family dog. And when she passed, it was, so every year there's like this celebration time and then a pause as Christmas, as Princess's picture goes onto the tree and we remember Princess and then we go back to celebrating and dancing and mom buys gifts for every year. So we got ornaments from years past and it's something to do with each other, right? But it's a time of celebration. When we realize the power in corporate celebration, we'll realize the power that God has for our life. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 16. There's a point in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. A lot of people know this story, right? They were thrown in prison, prison was shook, and they were released from prison, right? But I'm, I'm not one that likes to stop there. I want to know why, right? Why is Paul in prison? You know, a lot of people just make assumptions. Well, he's preaching the word. They didn't like him preaching the word. They threw him in prison. Do you know that's actually not the case? Paul ended up in prison because he got annoyed. 
All right, Acts 16, 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us and brought her, uh, met us, who this girl brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So she had, she was demon possessed basically and she could see the future and she was a slave girl and her master used her to predict the future to make money was what they were doing. This girl, verse 17, followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now is what she's saying wrong? No. All right, let's move on and I'll go back for a second. And as she said in verse 18, for many days, Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. The masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. Then they threw him in prison. He messed with their money. I'd make a lot of people mad. Start messing with your source of income, right? And then I thought to myself, all right, so I'm a preacher living in 2023. I don't intentionally go around messing with people's money that are going to throw me in prison right? Why would Paul do this? Right? I'm questioning this. So this is what I normally do. I find a situation and I go, did this ever happen to Jesus? Do you know this did happen to Jesus? But in Mark 1 24, Jesus did this. That same thing happened where the devil that was in that person looked at Jesus and said, you're the Christ, you're the one. And he said, you come out of him in Jesus name. And so I started doing a little bit more research into the scholars and what the scholars think about this. And it says this here, even when the devil speaks correctly, we can't let his voice in our life because inevitably those words will turn to lies because he's the father of lies. And I thought, wow, there's so much depth here. How many times do we allow the bits and pieces of the world to come in because at the moment they came in, they were truth and they ended up turning to lies and causing us problems. See, the devil is the devil right? He's the father of lies. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to drag you to the pit of hell because that's who he is. He can't help but lie. And when there's a lie, it's got the devil in it. I teach my kids that. When you're lying, you're operating in the devil's kingdom because God does not lie. He says, I don't lie. I don't change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when you give to a lie, you're giving to the devil's kingdom, okay? And in Mark, it says, Jesus cast him out and I, I just kind of come to this conclusion that we can't allow that, even when the devil's saying the right thing, you can't allow the devil to come in and mess with the ministry no matter what, no matter what. So let's move on into the story. Let's, let's go ahead in verse 20. Now they found out, right, he took his money, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or to observe. And I thought, I have had this happen to me where someone gets mad at me for some silly reason, but when they go to somebody to have something done about it, nothing but lies come out. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, right, they didn't go to the magistrates and say they lost our ability to make money. They went to the magistrates and said, oh, they're, they're going against our customs and laws that are good for us. And you know, they're trying to change things around here and they're causing problems. The devil will do that to you. You'll get in a situation and all of a sudden the attacks will come in and it'll just be nothing but lies. So the multitude rose up together, verse 22, against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. So now they're getting beaten. And when they had laid many stripes on them, in other words, they're beaten up. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. 
And having received such a charge, the jailer put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. And Paul's thinking to himself, I got annoyed and now I'm in prison and I've been beaten up. Right? How many times do you feel that way? I'm walking along with God. I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm in the will of God. And all of a sudden, something that seemed completely innocuous puts me in this huge trial and test. And now I'm in the middle of it. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do, right? Now I'm in the middle of this mess, but I knew I was doing what God called me to do. I'm casting out the devils because that's what Jesus did. Jesus cast out the devil, set people free because he didn't want to see any person, which is more important than the devil that's predicting the future. That's the ultimate goal. Because we had a young girl that was possessed by a devil. Even though that people of this world were maximizing and getting profit off of that, it's still not right because her life and her soul is more important than their profit. And he's showing us again value here too. Her life was more valuable than the money they could produce off of the devil that was inside of her. We need to start looking at people differently too. Now, anyway, following God at times will bring persecution into your life. You will be persecuted for your faith. I've had that happen a lot. And if you took the time to stop and talk to me, right, and ha have a conversation with me, you realize I'm not against anyone. I'm not opposed to anyone. Now, and also I have found that my lifestyle will push people away. How many have found that? Your lifestyle will push people away because I don't choose to go to the bars, because I don't choose to use vulgarity in my language. I don't choose to swear, which is uncommon in the trucking industry. High schools have gotten bad. I'll never forget when I went to Aiden Brox High School and walked through the halls to go bring him a book or something. I thought the amount of cussing I'm hearing coming out of these 16, 17-year-old kids, right? But I just don't talk that way. I, I'm not that way. I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to change who I am to make you feel better. I'm going to preach the word of God and I'm going to do what God tells me to do no matter what. So there are times where your mere lifestyle will repel people, right? But there's also the devil of this world that doesn't want people to end up in heaven that will fight you on that. Now, at midnight, this is where I want to get to. At midnight, this is the middle of the night. Later on, we'll learn that it was dark in there. You couldn't even see in there. They were in prison. There was no lights. There was no nothing, right? They are in, they are in stocks. They are in dire straits. Right? Most people would have given up and gone to bed. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. What that means is to celebrate God in song. It's called in Hebrew the great halal. And it references Psalms 113 to 118. But they were singing and praying and, and suddenly, or I'm sorry, I skipped a little bit here, praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So they weren't quiet. They weren't just sitting back going, oh, thank you, God, right? Praying under their breath. I've done that sometimes. I was going to the bathroom. I need to pray for a second to calm myself down to deal with these people because some of the people, you know, there's, there's so much world going on. It just starts grating on you. You're like, I can only handle so much, right? I'll do that with TV shows. I'll think, oh, there's a new TV show that's out. And all of a sudden there's one or two cuss words and I'm like, I just can't, I just want to listen to this. Is there anything out there that's decent? I just don't want to listen to this, right? It's just garbage. Why do I want to continue to put this in? At this point, what I'm doing is entertainment. It's not edifying me. It's not teaching me more about Jesus. So if it's not entertaining anymore and it's now repulling to me, why do I push through some of this stuff? I just don't want to. We, we chose a long time ago to not watch R-rated movies. There's just too much junk, right? Which I grew up watching different things, not a lot when I was a kid, more, you know, once I got out of high school and whatnot. But I realized that all of this constant bombardment of the world is not helping me become a better Christian or a better person. So I'm just going to cut it out. Now, the prisoners heard them. They heard them, which means they weren't quiet about it. They weren't quiet about it. 
Here they were in a situation that looked dire where they were in chains, they'd been beaten, their bodies are hurting, right? And they chose to pray and sing praises and celebrate. And it says, and suddenly, in verse 26, there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and Paul and Silas were, removed, or were released from their chains. No, it says, everyone's chains were loosed, the entire prison. When you choose to pray and use the power of praise and celebration and thanksgiving in your life, it will bring freedom to not only you, but everyone else that's around you. It's an atmospheric anointing that will change the very atmosphere around you, which is why when we move into a new house, I go and I pray over the house. When we're at our house, we like to have worship music playing in our house because music, which is tied into singing, changes atmospheres. There's a reason why I can, li- I like classic rock, right? I've always liked classic rock. I can listen to a lot. Of cl- I like Journey and Boston and all the classic stuff. And you listen to this. But there are certain bands that when I listen to these bands, they affect my spirit, man. And so I don't listen to the bands. Not saying that they're not classic rock or they're not in those eras or they're bad or whatever. You know, there are, I know other pastors that will listen to that music and it doesn't affect them like it does me. But it's my responsibility to know what affects me spiritually, right? For some people, it might be, well, when I listen to that band, it makes me think of my days of sinning or doing something wrong and it's bringing up the wrong memories. Well, then don't listen to that band. Listen to something that produces something good in your life. When I listen to Journey, nothing bad happens in my life. So it doesn't, and me, but for someone else, that could be something completely different. You need to know what's pulling you closer to God and what's bringing you away from God and what is setting the atmosphere. There's some Christian worship music that's out there that won't set the right atmosphere. There's some Christian worship music out there that's not worship music. That's nothing but singing your problems, right? I used to say it was back in the audio adrenaline days. I get down, but he picks me up, but I get down, but he picks me up. I'm like, I'm getting a headache listening to this song because we're going up and down so much. You're talking about how you fall and God picks you up and you fall and God picks you up. I'm like, this, that's not worship. That's not worship. There's some songs out there that when they sing the song, it's just the story of how they were just horrible person. And then at the very end, you find out Jesus helped them. But you just listened to the entire five minute message of all the bad that went on in their life. Now, who are we glorifying in this song? But music, when used correctly, changes an atmosphere, right? Do you know the world knows that, right? When I watch Indiana Jones, I listen to the orchestra. And when Indiana Jones is in a, a spot where the ball is coming down, that orchestra, you know, the, the atmosphere is changed by the music that's there. There's a reason why music carries that much power. And there's a reason why it was the worship leader in heaven that caused all the problems. Basically, it's what Satan was. He was the worship leader in heaven, right? Which I find it very interesting that it's statistically proven that more church splits are caused by worship leaders than any other position in the church. It's, it's been studied, it's been researched, and there is something to be said about that. But worship changes the atmosphere. So when you have something going on in your life that's a, tile, a trial and a test and a problem, what do you choose to do? I'll never forget, I remember being in eighth grade, feeling like I had no friends, feeling like my life was falling apart, right? I was in eighth grade. I mean, remember eighth grade. You felt like the world was coming to an end, and now you look back and go, I was pretty dumb because there was not much going on in eighth grade. And I just, but, but when you go to an eighth grader and you talk to them about their world, and if you downplay what they're going through, it'll destroy everything. Because at that moment in time, this, this is their entire world. And I'll never forget my mom coming into my room. And she was sat on the edge of my bed, and I just started crying. 
And she goes, what's wrong? And I said, why does everybody hate me? Why can't, why doesn't anybody like me? I'm a nice person, aren't I? You know, I couldn't figure it out. Why don't I have any friends? Why am I not the popular one? Now, I know now as an adult that there's more tied into the social atmosphere of an eighth grader based on who their parents are and what bars their parents go to. I'd learned that in the long run, that there's family dynamics of people, certain people that are friends because their parents are friends and how this works. But at the time, I just felt like, why does everybody hate me? And my mom said, not everybody hates you. You have a very compassionate heart. You care about people. She started telling me a few things. But she showed me at that point in time, I had a Sony cassette deck boombox back in the day. I saved up all my money and $89 and saved up all my money for this Sony cassette deck boombox. And I had my favorite two worship tapes and I would put in a worship tape and I would play it as I was going to sleep. And it helped me gain good sleep. And I learned something there that lasted me for many, many years. Two principles that I learned there. Worship changed the atmosphere in my room and allowed me to get over what was going on so that I didn't rob my sleep. And I learned the second thing is, is if I can get a good night's rest, I can overcome just about anything. And I grasped that. Now, I'm that kind of person. I know a lot of guys that are this way. When you're not feeling well, you just want to go to bed. I don't need a bunch of medicine. I don't need all this stuff. I just want to sleep. I can sleep this off. I can wake up in the morning and I feel better. I am that way. I've always been that way, right? So not exactly conducive to be driving a vehicle for a living when you're not feeling good because you're wanting to go to sleep, right? And I was really blessed a couple weeks ago when I wasn't feeling good. My boss gave me just runs to Atlanta, which for me are short. For someone else might not be a short run, but for me that's short where I was able to do things in short spurts and take a nap and rest and, uh, and recuperate. I, I, a couple weeks ago, I wasn't feeling very good uh, from when I had this tooth pulled. I ended up with sinus infection because of this tooth being pulled anyway. But I'm that way. When I don't feel good, I want to sleep. But I learned back then that if I can master the art of falling asleep and getting a good night's rest, I can overcome just about anything that persecutes me throughout the day. When I don't get enough sleep, I get really grouchy, right? Some people out there, I know that can survive about three or four hours of sleep. I cannot. I'm about a seven, eight hour kind of guy. I want my seven or eight hours and the cup of coffee in the morning with about quiet for the first 60 minutes. I don't want to get up to a bunch of noise. I want to get up to a bunch of fanfare, right? No parent in the middle of the night wants to hear, mom, I think I'm going to puke. You know, you jump out of bed going, ah, and then your whole world, you know. I want to get up in the morning, have a little bit of quiet. I want to talk to my Lord, talk to Jesus. And then I can face just about anything the day throws at me. But I learned that if I use music to change the atmosphere and get enough rest, I can accomplish the things that God's called me to do. Now, I remember when I was 16, I got invited to go to, actually, I think I was 15. I got invited to go to a, a Acquire the Fire weekend. And these were teen youth conferences back in the day. They're not even around anymore. Um, but they, Acquire the Fire was part of Teen Mania. Teen Mania was a group that sent kids to the mission field. And I went to an Acquire the Fire youth conference, which was just a weekend thing. And I ended up going on the mission field. I did two trips to Thailand for a month at a time between when I was 16 and when I was 17. Uh, and I chose Thailand because for those that don't know, so I don't have time to go into a long story, but my grandparents were missionaries in Thailand. And when my mom was about five years old, they were shot and killed. And they were, they're both buried in Thailand. They were martyred on the mission field. So my mom was raised by her grandmother. So my mom is kind of a generation older than she is, which is why, you know, I grew up on Danny Kaye and black and white movies, and that's, you know, Andy Griffith, and we just watched all that stuff, because mom was watching, we didn't watch the modern stuff, there was like a generation gap missing, right, which I don't regret at all. But because of that, I wanted to go to Thailand, I wanted to go walk the lands where my grandparents, you know, chose to go and give their life, basically, and they ended up dying on the mission field. 
But that first Choir of the Fire weekend that I went to, um, I, I grew up in a small town. You know, I'm, Farmer City is the town that we were in. is 2,500 people, and we were going to church in Roberts, which was at its peak about 800 people, right? And there was times where most of Roberts was about four to 500, and when we would have church on Sunday morning, the population of the town would double because our church was about 400 in a town of about 400. And people would drive from, a, I mean, we drove for 45 miles, so people would drive upwards of an hour to come to church. And my dad was the worship leader, and he used to get up on stage and say, it's worth the drive for a church that's alive. And I always remember that. It's kind of like one of those jingles in your head, you know, like a Marvin Hill's a wonderful guy. He was the Ford dealer in Illinois. And with the hardest beard is going. Yeah, never mind. It makes more sense if you're from Illinois. But it's just like that radio commercial jingle that's stuck in your head from when you were a kid. But um, I'll never forget, we went to this uh, Choir of the Fire weekend, but I came from this small church, and when we walked in, there was 4,000 teenagers in just high school. It was, it was like maybe seventh and eighth and then high school all in one auditorium. And we went into worship. And then when you worship, when you come from a small church and your youth group's maybe 10 people, right? And when the pastor says pray, you're kind of in the corner, you know, kind of whispering to yourself to 4,000 people worshiping God together. It was overwhelming. It was like, oh my gosh, the power in that room. And there was a point where they did some prayer and then he preached and they said, we're going to begin to pray. There's a mission uh, group that was going off into the field and us as a 4,000 people began to pray. 4,000 teenagers, which I guess maybe half of them that knew what, that had been to one of these before or maybe more than half, I don't really don't know, all started praying out loud all at the same time. And this group of mass prayer turned into shouts and praise and the power of God was there like I have never experienced in my life. I did not grow up with massive crowds like that. I grew up in a small town. But there is power in the unity of corporate prayer and praise when everyone comes together and everyone is praying out loud. It's not taught in a lot of churches, right? I remember when I uh, went, my only experience with a denominational church would be with my grandparents. They were Methodists their whole life. So I went one time because my parents were gone. My grandparents were watching us and we went Sunday morning to the Methodist church. Boy, that was eye-opening. I'd never been to a Methodist church before, let alone I'd never been to a Catholic service. I've never been to any of that. And I was maybe early high school years, maybe 14, 15 years old. And I remember going in and uh, they went to sing a song and I got to singing and my grandma's all like, you just need to calm down a little bit, you know? And then you had to sit down and then you had to kneel down and then you had to sit down and then you had to stand up. And they had a piece of paper that told you when you were supposed to kneel and when you were supposed to stand. And I thought, well, sit down, stand up, sit down. This is all rehearsed. I'd never experienced anything like that. And I thought, this is wild. This is very structured, but you didn't, you didn't, you didn't sing too loud. You didn't make any, draw any attention to yourself. You did not get out of your pew. You did not go to the bathroom in the middle of church service or grandma would have whooped you. I mean, it was just, that's the way it was, right? And I thought, oh my goodness. But to experience the difference between that and 4,000 teenagers praising God together and the power of God that fell in that place, which, which put a passion in me to be on the mission field and go on these trips. And when I went on these trips, they, everybody would gather in one place and then go off to the different mission fields and they would run 20 mission teams simultaneously. It was a massive organization. I was in a group of about 80 kids that went all at the same time over to Thailand for a month. We were there for a month traveling through Thailand doing dramas. Uh, the best way they found us to teach us all a drama and we put on this drama that had a, a, a box, it was a speaker about half this size that went into a box that we had to carry with us everywhere we went because we were walking most of the time. 
But that speaker had a little recorder with it, and we would hit play, and that music was a whole thing to our performance, but it had uh, it spoken Thai. It was in their language, so they could have a narration and know what was happening in their native tongue, because not all of us had translators or could even speak Thai. I learned just a little bit, but... but um, that changed my life forever to realize the power in corporate praise and to realize God doesn't always, even when you're by yourself, He doesn't want you just to sit in the corner and whisper to yourself. There's times in your life when you realize when I change me, when I change what's going on in here, and when I choose to celebrate outwardly, right, and I choose to sing and praise, I can change the atmosphere of everything that's going on around me in the situation that I'm in. Now, how did the early church pray? So we, you know, again, what did the early church do? This is what Paul and Silas did. So let's jump back a little bit to Acts chapter four. Dave, we're gonna go to Acts chapter four, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Even the early church, when there was persecutions and things that were going on, they would come back together and they would pray together. They would praise together. They would raise their voice with one accord. Jump down to verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their hearts and grant your servants with that, uh, your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That's what they're asking for is the ability to proclaim the gospel because that's what the early church was doing was preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Give us, and they were being persecuted for it. Give us the ability to preach it with boldness, to be able to stand out and proclaim on the corners that Jesus needs you, that, that Jesus loves you, that he paid a price for you, right? Proclaim with boldness and speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And that made me pause and go, you know what? I would listen to the person standing on the street corner screaming things with boldness if there were signs and wonders following. What's missing from our church these days? Where are the signs and wonders? Where's Paul walking along, casting out a devil, laying hands on the sick, and they're immediately recovered, right? The beggar at the gate. Where are the signs and the wonders in the modern-day church? But where are the modern-day believers who were willing to live their life with boldness like Paul and Silas did? There's your problem. People aren't willing to pay the price to get the result that they had. We want to live like the New Testament church. We want to have what they have, but we're not willing to pay the price to get where they were. Paul had to have a come to Jesus meeting, right? Paul was killing Christians, and he ended up blind and had to, had to meet Lord and Savior and have his heart completely changed. And he did a complete 180 to say, I am going to preach the word. And he was a theologian. He was an intellect is what they would say. So he would come down and not only preach to you, but it would be able to deba- he could debate with the greatest of them, right? I'm not the best debater. I'm a great storyteller. I'm a great preacher. That's the gifting that's on the inside of me. But when it comes to the intellectual, hermeneutical, homiletical word of God, you know, when you get into all the theoret, you know, going to the definitions, I can do it, but not my strong suit to pull it out. You know, I'm not that debater type person, but Paul was, and that's who he was. And there are people that are wondering why the American church is suffering so much. I specifically just say the American church, because although we have all these grandiose places and large churches and big things going on, where's the power of God? Where's the power of God where the miracles come out, where the signs and wonders come out, where things happen when you sit back and wonder? That's kind of what I see when signs and wonders. I'm going, oh man, God is good. How did that happen? 
I remember this as a kid. It was happening in the church when I was a kid. We had a minister that came through that was laying hands on people, and there was a lady that had the, one, the shoe that was bigger than the other because her legs were all messed up, and she had to have one shoe with the big, thick heel on it. You remember back when I did that? He laid hands on her, and she took her shoes off and went running through her church because her leg grew out. I miraculously saw it with my own eyes. I've seen it on the mission field. We were in Thailand on the second mission trip and we were laying hands on people. We were praying for people and there was a, a Thai lady that came up and started screaming and shouting and we just got really loud and really boisterous and we were like, we need an interpreter. And they brought someone over. She'd been blind from birth, not being able to see a thing and she instantly got her sight. Miracles happen. Miracles are for today. Signs and wonders are for today. But what does it take? It takes someone who's willing to press into the presence of God, someone who's willing to live the lifestyle to see the signs and wonders. There's an equal opposite side to this. But if we have pastors that are preaching on Sunday morning but living like the world the rest of the week, we're never going to see the signs and wonder in that church. We're never going to see it. If we have people that want to see the power of God move but they're not willing to pay the price or have a relationship with God that it takes to see the signs and wonders, we're, they're going to be missing under the church. That's part of that corporate praise that he's talking now. And then it says here, by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31, when they had praise, prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. What happens when you pray and you praise? You get filled. The power of God shows up. He says, if you're there where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in your midst. When you begin to praise him, his power shows up every time. God doesn't say, okay, well, you didn't quite do it good enough. I'm not going to show up this time. That's not how it works. God says, if you pray and you praise, power of God's going to show up every time. And there's that rumble, right? Kind of makes me think of the 12th man. Football analogy, right? 12th man, which the Seahawks like to claim as their own, but it's actually not. And I, they actually got sued. And I, I learned this by looking up the 12th man because I didn't know this. It actually started at Texas A&M. And they have it patented as the 12th man. Texas Aggies have the 12th man thing patented. And then it went to the Seahawks. And now it's become a thing at most football games that you watch where the home field advantage, the home field, they have realized if we shout for our team, we can affect change on the field. It's to say, you know, if they realize it in football, you think we'd realize it in church too. That if we're willing to be more vocal with our prayer and our praise, we can affect change of everyone that's around us. Now, when it comes to prayer, I've had a lot of people ask me these questions. You know, Pastor Paul, I just want to come to church and I'm going to have you pray for me because you're more spiritual than I am or you're more what than I am. Or I'm going to come in and have you pray for me. So what are the rules when it comes to prayer? Well, without going into all the different types of prayer, because there's a bunch of different types of prayer and a bunch of different types, here's your basic thing. I want to go through this. The number one problem that I find with that is that most people that are coming in saying, I just want you to pray, are unwilling to walk the walk of faith themselves. Someone else cannot grow your faith. You are the one that chooses to live by faith or not live by faith, right? I can pray the prayer of faith. That's the basic prayer that I can pray with anyone with no anointing. Now, there is a special faith that comes through anointing. It's one of the gifts that comes on people, right? The gift of special faith, gift of healings. We can go into all that. We'll do a whole series on that one of these days. But anyone can pray the prayer of faith for someone else. What does that mean? I'm using my natural faith to apply to a situation that's going on in your life. And the prayer of faith is a strong prayer. And it's what we're supposed to be using for each other, okay? Now, the Bible says in James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Which I find this interesting. Is anyone among you sick? What happens when you're not feeling good? Right? Fogs your brain, hard to think, can't put two thoughts together, barely drive down the road, you know. You just want to go, me? Just want to go sleep. I want to stand in faith. I don't want to fight the good fight of faith. I, don't want, I just want to sleep. I just want to feel better, right? So I find it interesting. The Bible says, is anyone among you sick? Call for the elders of the church. Let them lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, okay? But it doesn't stop there. A lot of people try to use that scripture to say, okay, I've got something going wrong in my life. Let me call for the elders of the church so they can come pray over this in my life. The only time it says call for the elders of the church is the prayer of faith for the sick. It says back in 13, if we back it up a little bit, is anyone among you suffering? Now, that word suffering means afflicted or going through a trial. What does it say if you're afflicted to go through a trial? Let him pray. If there's a trial or a pressure or a problem in your life, your words need to be spoken. You have to put words in. You have to speak these words. You have to apply your faith. Then it says, is any one of you cheerful? Let him sing psalms, which I find interesting. It put prayer and praise in the same scripture once again. Now, why is that? Because there are times where you need to stand up, you need to proclaim faith, and then you need to thank him for it through psalms. That's what psalms usually is, is glorifying God. And what does that do? When we begin to talk about all the things that God has done and the power, when I begin to tell these stories about how, you know, I saw miracles happen and this is what God's done. I mean, I can go through a list of all the different accidents. I have totaled four semis. Literally, I have totaled four semi-trucks in my lifetime. Not once did I get a ticket. Not once was it my fault. Not once did someone come to me after the accident accident and say, you should be dead. All four times the devil tried to kill me. All four times walked away without a scratch. I did a whole sermon once back when we were in Illinois. I went through all the different times where the devil tried to take me out, tried to destroy my life. One of them, I was driving a fuel truck. Whoever wants to be in an accident when you're hauling fuel, it's no fun. Big explosions, no good, right? And it was in a rainstorm in Fresno, California. I managed to get it completely safe into the side of the road. The DOT officer showed up out in California and said, I don't know how you managed to keep this from blowing up or from exploding. This, this shouldn't have happened this way. And I said, well, I know why it happened this way, right? And I same out in Corcoran, California, when the guy pulled out in front of me and ended up in an accident. And the DOT officer said, you should teach a class. This was the safest reaction to any accident. This is textbook, what you're supposed to do. I'm not sure how this happened, right? I had one where I was in a truck in, in Illinois and the, the truck brakes were completely bad. It wasn't even my fault. They bought a new trailer, never inspected it, never checked the brakes and put it on the road. And I was in the first load with it. And as soon as I hit the brakes on a little bit slick road, the truck jackknife, because the trailer had no brakes, the truck brakes locked up, threw it in the jackknife, went off into the ditch. A telephone pole hit the back of the cab. It was a day cab. Hit the back of the cab right behind the driver's seat. And he said, that should have ripped that whole side of the truck off, but it put a small dent in the back of the cab and split the telephone pole off. Said you that should have destroyed that whole driver's seat. That whole part should be gone. We don't know why it wasn't. I can tell you why it wasn't. Because that morning I was at the church with Kyle Cop and we used to meet together as a mentor of mine. We used to meet and pray every morning at six AM and he would tell me, You're gonna be here and you're gonna be praying. That morning when we were done and we were walking out, he stopped and said, the Lord is talking to me. You make sure you buckle your seatbelt today. You need to wear your seatbelt. And I've been praying for you today. He specifically said that to me before I walked out of the church that morning. Ten minutes later, I was in the accident with that semi. Totaled the whole entire semi. It ruptured the diesel tank and diesel was leaking. Never caught on fire, never exploded, never anything. I got out completely safe and totaled the whole truck. I could tell you the number of times where the devil has tried to take me out. What does it do when I remember that? 
The same thing he did for David. Remember when David sinned, saw the naked lady on the rooftop, and all of a bunch of mess came in his life. And the prophet came back in the house. What did he say? Don't you remember when we destroyed Goliath? Don't you remember the lion and the bear? What did the prophet start doing? Taking him back to the victories that God brought in his life. Because when you remember those victories that God brought in your life, it stirs faith for the future. There's times where you need to start remembering all the wonderful things that God's done in your life because it changes the atmosphere of the very thing you're walking through and enhances your faith to be able to overcome what you're in right now. But we have to take the time to remind ourselves. And what are we doing by reminding ourselves? We're glorifying God instead of the problem. But how many times you find somebody in a situation or in a problem and all they want to talk about is how bad the problem is? And what are they doing? They're glorifying that problem. They're making mountains out of anthills right? They're taking that problem and make it seem like this really big thing. Well, what did they do in the New Testament? They took God and made him the really big thing and nothing else can compare. If you're walking through a trial in your life, that's what praise does. When you begin to sing his praises, when you begin to sing the glory of him, that's what that is. You know, I'm going to begin to sing this out. I'm going to begin to proclaim his praises. I'm going to remember all the things that we've walked through the fire together, right? And it will literally grow your faith and strengthen your faith to overcome when you put your eyes on the right thing, when you glorify the right thing. If any among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises because that joy of praise is contagious. But let's go back to the Old Testament and let's see it one more time, one more example. Second Chronicles 21. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to the battle against Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat was the leader of the children of Israel at that time, the Israeli people, okay? So some came and told Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are from Hazan and Tamar. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Okay, so people came to him and said, there are armies after you. There are people after you. This is a big problem. They are coming to wipe you out and to clean your clock, right? And he was like, this is serious. What did he do? Oh man, they're going to tear me out. They're going to worry. Did he get into worry? Did he start allowing his mouth to destroy him by saying how big the enemy is and how big, right? What time in the Old Testament did the children of Israel get frozen because they allowed their mouth? Go back to David and Goliath. Right? David had to show up on scene because the whole children of Israel said, do you see how big this guy is? And it froze them all in their spots because they glorified the enemy above their God. What's the first thing David did when he came in? Who is this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine who challenges the mighty Lord all God Almighty, the, the God of Israel, of God of Jacob? And I, What did he start doing? He started glorifying God and making God bigger than the giant. So that's what Jehoshaphat did. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast. In verse 4, so Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek to the Lord. What did they do? They gathered in unity. They gathered together as a body of believers. Jehoshaphat stood, verse 5, in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before a new court, and he said, O Lord, our God, the fathers, are you not in heaven? What is he doing? He's starting to sing God's praises. He's starting to change the atmosphere of what's going on in the hearts of the people. He's allow, realizing that if I praise God, it will affect the entire crowd of people, and all of us will see the victory. Do you not rule over the kingdoms and nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? How big is your God? 
How big is your God? I've said that to people going through, but you don't know the problem that I'm in. How big is your God? Is your God bigger than the problem or not? See, we get, in this, we get in this problem, in this problem rut where we glorify the problem so much where we're so convinced that this problem is gonna take us out that we are downplaying God and magnifying the problem when it needs to be opposite. How big is your God? My God slayed the Goliath, right? Jesus showed up and fed the 5,000 out of a one, you know, two, the loaves and fishes. I mean, miracles. My God is a God of miracles. My God is a God that comes in and lays hands on the sick and they recover, cast out devils and demons. This is my God. This is my God, right? That can, that can go fishing and pay his taxes. I'd love to go fishing and pay my taxes. Just say, <laughs> Lord, am I supposed to go fishing and pay my taxes? Unless he tells you to, you know, anyway. How big is your God? But what is he doing here? He's insulting God above the problem, even the problem that looked like it was gonna destroy them and wipe them out. There are times when we reach a crisis and a, and a crossroads where we have to make a choice. How big is our God? How big is your God? Now, verse seven, and you, not our God, who drove us, are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? What's he doing? He's stirring up more faith. Second Chronicles 20, 13, now all of Judah with their little ones, I find this interesting, didn't leave their kids at home. They brought their kids into this to teach their kids. If you learn this principle, it will change your life. There's times where we need to not only be concerned about how it's affecting us, but what our kids see, what our neighbors see, what our friends see, because when they watch us walk through trials, when they have a trial themselves, they'll come and say, how am I supposed to do this? I saw you do it, right? Because we need to quit just thinking that life is all about us. The amount of selfishness in this world is just getting thicker and thicker and thicker, and you can hear it in people's conversations, you can see it in their actions, you can see it driving down the highway. Because out there on that highway, right, on I-10, the raceway of I-10, it is every man for himself. And I'm going to do what's best for me, forget everyone else that's out there. There's not going to be any courtesy anymore. There's not even courtesy amongst truck drivers anymore. Used to be a courtesy amongst drivers. You're a professional driver. I'm a professional driver. I'm going to flash my lights or let you overdo. None of that anymore. Everybody, eat, everybody dog eat dog, all about me. It's really bad in the truck stops. I'm going to pull up and block this and it's all about me. Forget about you. But it's the selfishness of this world is reigning supreme. There's times when we need to realize what the freedom is and teach it to not only us and our kids, but everyone else that's around us. Now, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jezeel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benah, and the son of Jael, the son of Metna, and the Levite sons of Ashvah in the midst of the assembly. Verse 15, and he said, listen, all of you, Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. In other words, he's taken over, he's going to win the battle, you won't even have to worry about it. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. He tells them exactly where they're going to be. You will not even need to fight in this battle. Verse 17, position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do not go out against him, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the children of the Kohites, of the children of the Korites, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. They didn't sit back and whisper. They began to shout. God just basically said, you're going to win this battle and not even have to fight it. 
And they started shouting, right? It'd be like the coach saying, we're going to win this football game and you don't even have to play it. Boy, the crowd would go nuts. But yet we can scream over a pigskin being thrown over a football field and not praise and shout when the Lord delivers victory in our life. So they rose early in the morning, verse 20, and went into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Lord, O Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Believe in God, you're going to be established. Believe in his prophets, and you're going to prosper. And when he had consulted the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of his holiness. And they went out before the army, saying, Praise the Lord for his mercies endures forever. And when they began to sing praise, the Lord set ambushments against the people of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated without ever having to fight a battle. Because praise went out before them. They sought the Lord. He gave them an answer, and they began to praise him for it. See, this is what this, this pattern looks like. You have a problem shows up in your life. What does prayer do? Prayer says, okay, God, this is what your word says. I have victory in this. I have healing according to this scripture, this scripture, and this scripture. I am blessed and have more than enough because this scripture, this scripture, this scripture. All right, whatever it is that you're dealing with, I have the scriptural foundation for it. Your, your word says it. I believe it. That settles it. So I'm going to say, Father, thank you for giving me this. You make your petitions known to God. Thank you that you are providing enough finances for us to pay our bills. Right? I'm asking you right now, help us with this. Right? But from that moment on, we don't go back to God and keep asking, hey, can you send some money our way? We need to pay our bills. Hey, can you do this? See, that's where praise comes in. We've gone to him. We know what his answer is going to be because we already know what he's told us based on the scripture. We ask him and make our petitions known to him. Then we thank him. We spend the rest of our time just thanking him, keeping our hearts in the right place. Thank you, you're going to do this. Thank you, you sent the money already and it's on its way, Right? They went out and started praising him before they ever saw the enemy destroyed, before the problem ever disappeared in their life. There are times where you've gone before God, you've made your petitions known, you've asked of God something, and you know that it's promised because it's in the word. And from that moment on, you just begin to praise him and keep a heart of thankfulness, and you watch it happen. Might take a day, might take a week, might take a month. Depends on what you're believing God for, right? But you watch it happen and you thank him for it. You never go back and question whether he's willing to do it because we know he's willing to do it. You just thank him for it. That's what praise is. That's what praise is. And that's exactly what they did. But it's more than just us. And I want to finish with this. Remember back, Paul and Silas, they're in prison, right? They began to pray, sing praise. Whole place was shook. They could have stopped and said, God set us free. Let's go on and let's preach and let's go on. But that wasn't the end of the story. See, when God brings freedom into your life, when God answers your prayers, when you've praised and you've seen the victory, it's not just for you. We have to get out of this thinking that everything God has is just for me, right? When God brings blessing into your life, it's not just for you. When God brings healing into your life, it's not just for you. Everything that God brings into your life is not just for you. Verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, celebrating to God, and the prisoners heard them. Verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, this was after, the, you know, they got set free, awakened in his sleep, seeing the prison doors were open, supposed he automatically made an assumption, the prisoners are all gone, right? That's what he assumed. That's what most people assume. You got your victory and you're out of here. You got your success and you're out of here. You got your healing and you're out of here. That's how the world operates. That's what the jailer assumed. 
And he thought, you know what? I'm just going to draw out my sword and kill myself because otherwise they're all going to kill me from letting him go anyway. I had one job and it didn't happen. Then Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Not only him and Silas, but every prisoner that was in that place. Paul didn't let any of them go. They all might have been set free, but he said, we're not going anywhere, right? He called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? The power of God will convict those that are around you to turn their lives towards him. And we miss that peace. You know, other people around us, our kids, our friends, our family, are watching the trials that we're going through. And when God brings in victory, yes, it is to set us free, but is it also to show his glory to everyone else? And they will fall on their feet and they will come to you and go, I want to know this God. I want to know this God. That's the signs and wonders following. I see this God moving in your life. I want to know about this God. You want to know how to have the most effective testimony in the world these days? You need to have God operating through your life. You need to have so much of God in your life that people are coming in to say, I want to know this God. This is the God I want to know. I've seen the fake. I've seen the smoke. I've seen the drummers zip tie in from the back of the church. I've seen the big productions. I've seen all of this. This is real. I want to know this God. That's what needs to be coming out of our life. God working through us so much that people can see the change. Do people see change in your life? Right? When you walk in on Monday morning, Deb, do you know if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have won their football game? No? Really? Well, he's a pretty quiet guy. But most times when you have somebody that is a fan of a team and their team wins, you're going to hear about it. You're going to hear about it. You hear about it when they lose too, but you're also going to hear about it when they win, right? If we can do it for a silly team, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with football. I'm just saying if we can do it for something silly like that, can't we do it for God? Shouldn't God's power be moving so much in our life and affecting so much change in our life that we just want to tell everyone? I'm not the same as I was. I'm not dealing with anxiety and stress anymore. I'm not dealing with all these problems and all this stuff. I was healed and set free of this thing that was going on in my life. It should be a testimony to everyone else who's around us. And we're missing that. When, Paul, when, when the Bible says you need to lay up your treasures in heaven, you can't take money with you. What are the treasures you're laying up in heaven? All the people that you have opportunity to tell, tell about Jesus, to have a, a life-changing experience with Jesus and spend eternity in heaven with you. That's the treasures. My wife said it last night, and I'll finish with this. She said, as we get older and we have all this stuff and things, our happiest moments, there's so much truth in this, our happiest moments is when our whole family's together. It doesn't matter what we're doing. Laughing, playing among us, Golfing. We went to the we went to the fast eddies and went on the racetrack where they put baby powder down and the, the little golf go karts like slide around. So we're in go karts, just our family, just us, sliding around this track, laughing hysterically, crashing into each other. People trying to drive serious, people intentionally trying to make other people slide. You know, but the most fun was when all of us are together. It's how the body of Christ is supposed to be. It's how heaven is supposed to be. We'll be it unto the person that got saved and went to heaven and there's no one else around them that they brought with them. 
we're supposed to get to heaven and say, oh man, I'm so glad you made it. I'm so glad you had the opportunity to hear about Jesus and you're here to celebrate with me. There is the, the joy and that celebration that's gonna come from heaven is from all the people around you that were changed because you took the opportunity to allow God to work in your life and it was affecting everyone else that's around you. That's how our Christian life is supposed to be. It's not just about us. It's not just about me getting mine and getting my reward. It's about how many can I take with me? Because you can't take anything else. Come into this world naked and screaming. And that's how you're going to leave this world. Hopefully not screaming. Right? What can you take with you? People. People that need to hear about Jesus. Need to hear about his saving power. And about him not wanting to have a life of, of, of poverty, a life of sickness, a life of problems, but a life of blessing and a success and a life of awesomeness because that's what God offers. That's what he offers. To get out of the way of this world and to have a life that is full of blessing. But it's not just for us. It's for us to share. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, what a great responsibility it is to be your light in this world. And you told us, don't hide our light but put it on a hilltop so that all could see. All could see. I love the quote from John Wesley when he said, I want to be so full of God that my life is set ablaze so that people can see this fire for miles and miles around and they will come to know the glory that is Jesus. Father, help us to spend so much time with you in the presence of your light that we're glowing, that it is very obvious that we are full of Jesus. It's very obvious we're full of joy, compassion, grace, mercy, love, joy, forgiveness, long-suffering, all the fruits of the Spirit, all the results of being in your presence, Father. Help us to be so full of you that it affects the very world around us, where even the people in the darkest of this place in this world will look over and say, I need that freedom that is operating in your life. Show me how you've gained this freedom. Show me where this comes from. I'm tired of living in bondage. Father, thank you for looking outside of ourselves and realizing that the treasure we lay up in heaven is the people that we help assist and get there through your love and your price, the people we introduce to you, Father. Thank you for that great privilege and responsibility. Hi, this is Pastor Paul, and I wanted to thank you personally for joining us today. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do that will help us out. Hit the subscribe button and rate and review our podcasts. If you would like to invest in helping us reach more people for Christ, head over to livingwordpensacola.com and click on the online giving button. Thanks again for joining us today. Now go out and tell somebody about the love of Jesus. Jesus.